Bonjour, Tanse. Welcome to Mino Gundagan, the Good Voice podcast, a show exploring reconciliation from an Indigenous perspective. I'm your host, Tim Fontaine. On this episode, we speak with two spirit people of Manitoba. We pose the question Has reconciliation happened within the LGBTQTT community? Has it happened within the lives of these two spirit people? Stick around to find out. Our first guest is Albert McLeod, a two-spirit elder and educator from the Nisichuasic Cree Nation and the Métis community of Norway House in northern Manitoba. He has over 20 years of experience as a human rights activist and is one of the directors of the Two-Spirited People of Manitoba. Albert lives in Winnipeg, where he works as a consultant specializing in HIV, AIDS, and Aboriginal peoples, Aboriginal cultural reclamation, decolonization, and cross-cultural training. Bonjour, Tanse. Welcome to Minogandaigan, the Good Voice podcast. I am your Alyssa Blackwolf Kixon, and today I have Albert McLeod with me. Hi. Hi, welcome. So, Albert, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I originally come from the north. I grew up in Nepal, and uh, my family's heritage is very much uh, kind of about the colonial history of uh, Manitoba. My ancestors were on the male side were Scottish, uh, who immigrated from Scotland during the fur trade. And in those days, uh, there wasn't any European women here, and there was kind of a, um, a directive not to marry Indigenous women. And thankfully, my ancestors did. They married the Cree uh, women of northern yes. Manitoba. And it was part of the, you know, the economy of the fur trade, but it was also about you know, people falling in love. And, uh, you know, uh, I look at uh, photos from uh, that era of my grandparents and or great-grandparents and really see, you know, that, uh, you know, they were young people who just fell in love and mm-hmm. got married and had kids. You are, say, like matriarchs of the Two-Spirit Movement, one of the, one of the leaders in, in that reclamation process and in um, reclaiming the teachings and the roles and, you know, just being a person that young people could go to when they were, you know, discovering their gender identity, their sexuality, especially around being two-spirit. How did that, how did that happen for you? Well, uh, you know, coming from the North, it was very, you know, a very colonial binary gender society uh, in that, you know, it was all about assimilation in the 60s in the North, and anything Indigenous was seen as really historic or quaint and really not important or valuable to moving forward as a society. And, you know, being queer, you know, coming out, I came out when I was about 15 in the high school in the Paw, it was, people were not prepared, you know, to understand you know, people's sexual orientation or how to support people. And there was a lot of silence, a lot of uh, ostracization. And uh, and it was really struggle for me until I realized I needed to get out of there. Uh, and so I ended up in Vancouver. And really what we were doing uh, was picking up the thread of indigenous uh, constructs around gender or sexual orientation that predate colonization. And, you know, we're, you know, in that era, we were coming out of really heavy colonization in the Indian residential school era, where it was really, you know, imposed, you know, uh, Euro colonial ideas about what constitutes uh, gender. You know, a lot of it was driven by uh, religion, Christianity, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Anglicans and all of that. And a lot of it was fear driven as well about not conforming, not fitting in, but also sinning. And so in those days, you know, being queer, you were perceived as being a sinner or, you know, uh, uh, overtly sexual being, and there wasn't much understanding. So being in Vancouver, I ran into a bunch of other queer indigenous people from the prairies who had done exactly the same thing I had done, was really seeking out safe spaces, a place where you know our indigenous identities can be you know validated, and so in 1979 I ended up in Vancouver with forty dollars. Oh, I stayed huh. for three years, and met the uh, Greater Vancouver Native Cultural Society, and these were queer indigenous people from all over Canada, who created their own society and families. And they were surrogate families in the sense that we supported each other by you know our 
age group. So I had uh, a mother and Aww. I had a daughter, a drag daughter. So I had a drag mother and a drag daughter. So for me, that was really an important uh, learning about Indigenous beliefs that, you know, when we're in isolated places or strangers, that we adopt each other mm-hmm. and create that family around us. Because my family couldn't, you know, back in the day. We just didn't have the skill sets to know about nurturing or, you know, coming out from that era of racism Mm -hmm. that, you know, everybody was in the survival mode. And I think a lot of people still are, you know. Yes, very much so. So for me, with regard to gender, a lot of my peers and colleagues, uh, biological males, you know, uh, they had a female persona and -hmm. still do to this day. You know, they just had their 40th, 41st celebration called the Legacy. And each legacy has a a chief and a princess. And some of the chiefs have been female, but all the princesses have been male. And some are trans, uh, you know, some are you know, uh, drag performers or uh, gender nonconforming people. So it's mm-hmm. 41 years of history, and I really see it now as it's kind of one of the longest LGBT movements in North America that has a consistent uh, identity and uh, our own history. Yeah. And so, uh, like my my mother, or per se, culture mother, She's, you know, I'm 63, so she's a bit older than me. So Mm -hmm. in in terms of intergenerational support, and then my daughter, Sarah, you know, I think she's around 50. So, you know, that was like uh, 79, 80, almost 40 years ago. Oh, my gosh. That we were doing this. So, again, you know, coming out or being an activist in the queer community, especially being indigenous, uh, you know, it's not something new. And I think that thread of continuity existed through the residential school period, even though it's muted and censored and hidden, that some of what we're doing now is our research is really to shine some light in that era. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's why universities are important, especially here at the University of Manitoba that has the National Archive and a lot of statements that people give because with the TRC, there really wasn't much about the experience of queer uh, people through the schools or this, what the survivors said or any uh, and those kind of things. And so that's what we're curious about is yeah. really how did they navigate or, you know, navigate these really binary gender uh, situations in isolated schools. Do you feel like the—so there's the 94 Calls to Action. Do you feel like the 94 Calls to Action uh, addressed any any of those, you know, like the, the two-spirit uh, gender sexuality? Do you think they addressed any of those, those issues? Well, it, and, and the, this is kind of one of the issues with national uh, inquiries like this or mm-hmm. initiatives like this— um, we really need to do a historic gender analysis before yes. we embark on huge uh, engagements like this, especially with the indigenous community, because we assume that, you know, when we talk about, you know, men in prison, that's a gender issue. Yes. And, or the inquiry for murdered in, into murdered and missing indigenous women, that's a gender-specific issue. But it comes from the lens of government, yeah. And it doesn't, you know, entirely capture the indigenous, uh, you know, philosophy or worldview or experience. So so really we need to balance it and be cautious about that in that we really need to do that historic gender analysis. And with the TRC, you know, it's been said that, you know, there's no specific, uh, you know, call to action with regard to gender, uh, you know, uh, research or gender deconstruction or any of that which we had hoped would occur that would come out of that whole process, but but didn't. And now it's it's as you know, well, all the 94 calls of action are inclusive or allude to yes. uh, two-spirit or queer people, which is not really helpful because, again, you're falling into that gender binary construct uh, because who who's going to analyze that or read it and say, well, I think this one is about queer people, yeah. you know, and it's it's uh, easy to generalize, yeah. which really tends to exclude queer people. How do you think, like within the queer community, and you know, within the especially the indigenous queer community, 
how do you think reconciliation is possible? Like, how do you think reconciliation can even start? Well, I think we have to reconcile with our home communities and our nations, Mm -hmm. you know, whether we're, you know, Inuit or Métis or First Nation or even urban, you know, urban populations are quite huge now. That uh, as well as with the broader community, that includes the broader LGBT community, about who we are, what our skills are, what our gifts are, and what our contribution to society is. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we've been doing that work for quite a long time now, like the last 30 years. Uh, And recently, with the uh, Assembly of First Nations General Assembly in Vancouver, a uh, resolution was passed to support the establishment of a national uh, two-spirit organization, which is really historic in the sense that it was unanimous, you know, by all the chiefs voted for it. So really it says, you know, that uh, we're unique in, the, in our role in that, you know, we can contribute uh, solutions to some of the problems in the Indigenous community. We have a different point of view, which may be, you know... Uh, Deals addresses gender politics or gender uh, violence and those kind of things. So, so I think that's that's an aspect of reconciliation. We just finished the thirty first annual international two spirit gathering uh, just north of Winnipeg here, and again that that talks about we're reconciling our own history with the land. In that yes. this gathering has moved all over North America. Uh, 31 years on the road, and so we're doing our own form of reconciliation. And it's, it's the irony is a lot of these uh, gathering spaces are in old Christian Bible camps. <laughs> so we're kind of coming up behind the Christians and saying, yeah. you know, that was good, but now we're back. Yeah. So that's what I'm talking about, picking up the thread, really, is, you know, and I don't want to generalize in terms of North America and the experience of queer Indigenous people who live in their communities, work, you know, raise their kids or are leaders. I'm only talking about sort of more of the urban uh, political advocacy sp- uh, spectrum and that there isn't enough research to tell us what is the experience of queer people who are yeah. living in rural communities, on reserves, northern communities, uh, to really give us, uh, you know, because I don't want to speak for them, you know, because maybe they have great lives. Do you think that reconciliation is coming from a place of of indigenous needs rather than colonial wants. Well, I think, you know, when you look at colonization, because it didn't only happen in North America, it was, you know, mm-hmm. the Philippines, South Africa, a lot of indigenous peoples around the world were impacted. But also, you know, because of it, it wasn't constructed in, in sort of a... Um, how, how indigenous people understood the land and what they learned over thousands of years about ensuring that there's going to be rain in the following year, mm-hmm. right, for your crops or that there would be, you know, animals to hunt. And I think that's been lost in colonization. So I think that's what reconciliation is about, is beginning to understand what indigenous people know about the land because now we have climate change, yes. right? And we can, you know, pray and hope and vote all we can about that, but nature will tell us <laughs> what it's going to do and yeah. show us. And so, so that's that's sort of I think as indigenous and settler people, we need to wrap our heads around how are we going to work together mm-hmm. uh, with climate change and the future. Yeah. And and you know that's a common goal that we you know it's for our grand our grandchildren. So we need to reconcile whatever we have yeah. and, and put our stuff on the table and, and really say, what, what, what is important? You know, how are we going to work together? And, uh, uh, but I don't think people are, are there yet. Uh, but a lot of the work I do, you know, I encourage uh, non, non-Indigenous people to validate and value uh, our traditions, our ceremonies, because there's a reason why they exist today. Mm-hmm. And some of it has to do with our relationship with nature. Wise words from such a wise granny. Thank you. <laughs> well, uh, thank you, Miigwech, Albert, for joining us on our podcast. Yeah, it's great. And uh, uh, keep up the, the amazing work that you do. It's very important. Thank you. Mm. Bye. Bye. <laughs>
Welcome back to Mino Gundagan, the Good Voice podcast, a show exploring reconciliation from an Indigenous perspective. We just spoke with Albert McLeod, Two-Spirit activist. For more information, check out his website, albertmcleod.com. Up next, our second guest is Levi Foy, also known as Prairie Sky, Levi's drag persona. He has been the program coordinator for Like That at Sunshine House since 2014. Foy is a two-spirit member of the Kuchiching First Nation who was raised in Treaty 2 territories and formerly educated in Winnipeg and Guelph, Ontario. Levi has lived in Mexico for three years, spent two adult years working in his community, and has worked in Winnipeg at the Mainstream Project, Aboriginal Health and Wellness Centre, and most recently voted Top 40 Under 40 for the CBC. Bonjour, Tanse. Welcome to Minogandagan. I am Alyssa Blackwolf Kixon, and I am sitting here with... Levi! Bujou Anin, Manadugui Wazen's Indigenous Kuchiching in Dunjibab. My name is Levi Foy. I am from Kuchiching First Nation, and I'm also known as Prairie Sky. After the 94 Calls to Action came out, do you feel like within the Two Spirit community that you have seen any? major changes in terms of um, indigenous voices and representation within within that realm well full disclosure i have not read the 94 calls to action because since in my life since i've been politicized uh, i have seen several different calls to action in several different forms starting with RCAP and the Kelowna Accord and all of these other things and so I've I've glanced them over but I know that at the end of the day shit's probably not gonna have not gonna change in the way that we need things to change um, so and then but that going back to your original question the seeing the way that things have changed or particularly how things might affect two-spirit people well I think there's two kind of things that should be addressed in that question is that the two-spirit community generally we've always just kind of done our own thing we don't we don't like we've been forced for a lot of reasons to become self-reliant and so um, many of our queer like our two-spirit and indigenous queer and trans ancestors just did their own thing and um, and then if the general population or mainstream society whether that's mainstream Canadian society or mainstream indigenous societies if they want to include us in things then we then of course we'll we'll do those things but we're always every two-spirit person that I know just kind of meets these things with a lot of um, hesitation for a lot of good reasons and sometimes indifference and just like eh, we're not we'll do what we want to do sort of thing so I've seen a little bit. I've seen a little bit of change. Um, I've seen a lot of really good people like Albert McLeod and some really great folks down in like the Toronto area who are doing a lot of work around raising awareness and raising the profile of Two-Spirit kind of needs and concerns within these um, more um, mainstream or more public kind of venues like Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. Um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So um, I'm seeing a little bit of it, but again, because at the ground level or at the level that in the community that I work in, people's people's lives aren't as impacted by these things in the immediate sense. People don't see the value in participating in these things because the change might not happen for a lot of times. And people have been a part of these conversations for 20, 15, 20 years, 30 years, and no real changes happen. As a performer, um, do you feel like within being a drag queen that you've seen any changes within that broad community of, you know, other queens of other, you know, who are mainstream or who are also marginalized? Have you seen any sort of changes um, with two-spirit queens being being celebrated or you know any positive changes there again I, I, I think so I want to believe that I've seen these changes or that I'm more aware of these changes the um, so the like 
where was it the was it tiff that just happened or or what's or what just happened where the, that documentary about the australian indigenous queens um and they talk the, their take on the pageant system um so I, I feel like there's a lot of um outside outside or out group kind of paying attention to what whatever the drag community is doing whether that be at the local scene at the the national scene or in the international scene, there's there's some paying there's some paying attention to it, and there's a real desire to see other varieties and forms of drag and kind of how these things play out elsewhere in the world. But on the flip side of it, um, because drag in the last five years or even three years in Canada when it became on Netflix uh, with RuPaul's Drag Race, you see a lot of people just. Um, it's also brought in a lot of out-group kind of criticisms, a lot of people feeling like they have the the space and the opportunity to comment on what and define what drag can be. And then within within the drag community itself, um, I, like I, I live and I work in Winnipeg and I work in, and then the other city that I'm pretty familiar with their scene is, is like Regina and I don't really venture too far out from that and here I feel there's been a lot of people who have contributed to ensuring that indigenous queens and ensuring that queens of color still have that position that they're supposed to have within the drag community because it was it was Latinx queens it was um, black queens it was queens of color poor queens who have always been kind of the face of the movement and still are like RuPaul is still the face of drag, so it's still a it's still a black face sitting at the top of our kind of hierarchy. Yeah. To you, what does reconciliation mean? The way that it's happening in Canada is just so perverse. It's it's so messed up because reconciliation and the way that Truth and Reconciliation projects, as far as I understand historically, the way that they work is that it was the aggressor who had to take on the burden of doing reconciliation work. So if you take, um, I think the example, one of the examples that I'm, I, I could be completely talking on my ass here, but if you take the example of Argentina, where they did a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, um, the people who went out to the communities and did the work and gathered stories and met with people were people who were involved in the army, were government officials, um, were people who might have been um, guerrilla warriors or resistors and so you had a lot of dialogue that was happening and people being able to change the mind of their peers to kind of make that re reconciliation project work to um, unite the country or unite that that space to become a better place for everybody in the hopes that something as graphic as what had happened there um, wouldn't happen again. Now in Canada, in typical Canadian fashion, the state, um, Can the Canadian broader public, um, maybe even some of our own like people within our communities, um, felt that it was important for indigenous people to take on the labor of reconciliation. Now what indigenous people's role in my mind, what our role in that should have been, is to define what we think reconciliation looks like and then it was up to Canada. It'd be up to Canada to come back to us and be like, this is what we've kind of, this is what we've got. Um, this is, these are kinds of the steps that we can take now. And this is the commitment that we're gonna force, kind of, that we're gonna have these, make these things happen. But now, you have the 94 calls to action, and you just have people just willy-nilly opting in, opting out on how they want, and nobody's going to do, very few people, very few settlers, very few institutions within the country um, are going to take on the actual labor of doing that kind of stuff. And it's going to be us who will have to hold people accountable, and then we're going to be the angry Indians, we're going to be the, the, the whiny Indians who get so much and all this other crap, because it just plays right into that, that narrative that's been constructed about us in the, last, in the 20th century, and then continues on in the 21st century. And then, they can, and then the other thing that Canada's really, really good at is they'll be able to just like slap their hands and be like, oh, we tried, and then that's it, and then walk away. 
How do you think that we could, um, how could the narrative change? Like for reconciliation to actually mean something and to, and to be reconciliation, how, how can Canada change that narrative? By working, working really hard so that everybody who is involved in any kind of decision-making, any kind of policy-making at any level in Canada, any kind of business interaction, any kind of anything, any of those head-level people and low-level people who are going to be enter like not low-level but entry-level people, all of those people have to be able to understand these things full well and know what it means, know know what understand their position and understand their role in ensuring that Canada can move forward as a nation if they actually believe in reconciliation. So that means having to be able to be aware and interrogate for individuals to be able to interrogate their own position, the way that they contribute to the to the marginalization and the continued oppression of indigenous peoples. And then I guess for some of those people, they might need to have moments where they're gonna have to be like, yeah, that's, I'm, I'm shitty. We've all gone through those moments where like, hey, I've contributed to something in a very shitty way. Now, how do I rectify this? Um, my organization, my company, my job, my, my family history, all of these things have contributed to, to something that's not, to, that's less than ideal at best and horribly um, horrible at worst. So for people to fully understand that, you won't get everyone to buy in, but if you have the people who are making decisions and then the people that are gonna eventually make decisions understand these things, maybe in your children's lifetime, it'll be a little bit better than it was for us, because it was. Like, my life was definitely a lot easier in a lot of ways than my parents and my What advice would you give to, to little queens, to, you know, to little young people who want to do what you're doing? I think the... The advice that I would give to people is that everything beautiful in this world takes work. Um, so being a drag queen and being able to do the stuff that you mentioned that I do, it takes a lot of work. <laughs> and that's not a bad thing. Being able to understand that we have to, that as an individual, I have to work and I have to continually um, understand like what it is I like about myself and what it is I like about and what it is I don't like and how to like kind of repair those things and, and fix those things constantly and just continually work on, work at yourself. Um, so that's usually the first thing I say is that everything's going to take work. And then the other thing that I always say to people is understand your role. Figure out what your role is going to be. What, what is your role that you want to be? And then, then you have something that you can work towards. If you just, if you just want to be a drag queen because that, that's just kind of, it's just going to be something fun that you can do on a, sat, a Saturday a month, that's cool. That's really great. Because um, not everybody can, be, can do the things that I'm kind of gifted, that I've been gifted to do, right? I've been... I was not, we worked really hard at the Sunshine House to become the Sunshine Bunch. Yeah. Uh, we worked really hard within the drag community to build bridges and to build that connection between the other queens in the city. And there was several people who were just kind of involved in that kind of project in making Winnipeg a better space for drag performers. Not, my, not only myself, there was, there was like, there was pheromones, there were the people who were um, who felt betrayed and distrusted by the mainstream drag community who opened up their hearts and were like forgiving of past wrongs. And then there was younger queens who realized that like, like Cake and Satina and, and um, Tyra Boinks and Jasmine and all these people who realized that these connections need to be built because once we do that, the community is going to be better. So just understand like what, what your role is. Um, and sometimes if you get thrusted into a role that you're uncomfortable with, 
be able to have like make sure that you have supports and that you have the people around you that you need to your your chosen family your drag family who can kind of be there to make sure that you're going to be okay at the end of whatever it is that you're doing or during especially during not at the end during it's more better to be safe during things because that's always my motive i'm like i'm just gonna do all this shit and then at the end i'm like whoa i did all this shit I'm burnt out. <laughs> I'm done. I'm so tired. Why didn't I check in with somebody like two weeks ago? And thank you so much for just being being an amazing person. Like we we go so far back. <laughs> Too far back. <laughs> Too far back. Generations back, actually, because our parents <laughs> and our grandparents have stories about each other. Yes, yes, that is that is uh, too true. Too true. I wanted to thank you. Thank you for having me. I feel so honored to be included in this wonderful roster you've gathered <laughs> through nef- nefarious means. Yes. Bye-bye. See you. Welcome back to Mino Gandeg and the Good Voice Podcast, a show exploring reconciliation from an Indigenous perspective. We just spoke with Levi Foy, two-spirit activist and drag queen performer. Check out Prairie Sky in the 2018 TV series, Canada's a Drag. Finally today, we are joined by our third guest, Sadie Phoenix Lavoie an Anishinaabe Two-Spirit from Saguenay First Nation. Graduating with a BA in Indigenous Studies and Political Science, Sadie Phoenix formerly was the co-president of the U of W Aboriginal Student Council, Aboriginal Student Commissioner for the Canadian Federation of Students, Manitoba, and Vice President of External Affairs on the University of Winnipeg Students Association. Sadie Phoenix is currently the National Executive Representative of the Circle of First Nations, Métis, and Inuit Students. Sadie Phoenix has worked on numerous student-led initiatives, including the Indigenous Course Requirement and the Fossil Fuel Divestment Campaign. Hello, I am Melissa Blackwolf-Kixon, and I am sitting here with Sadie. Sadie, why don't you say a little bit about yourself? Yeah, um, my name is Sadie phoenix Lavoie. Um, I'm originally from Saging First Nation, but I write, reside here in Winnipeg. I'm currently a community coordinator at Winniskatan, which works with Indigenous communities affected by hydro. What would you say was the one that sort of, like, what inspired you to do this type of work? I suppose what really inspired me was um, I was in university, and it was my first year. I was just getting to know kind of Winnipeg and uh, the Indigenous community in Winnipeg. Um, I don't know more kind of happened and then it just kind of reaffirmed a lot of things for me where I seen this is what I need to do this is what I feel most passionate about was you know ranting on Facebook and like you know applying political pressure and organizing events and rallies and things like that like that really got me going because it was my sense of community like the community coming together and and you know, using their voices to create change. I thought that was very powerful. And I felt powerful for the first time in a really long time. Or, you know, I felt that self-power as well and community power. So um, I just kept searching for that feeling over and over again. Um, They're out since. Do you find that from advocacy, you know, that varies, you know, like you're doing the hydro, um, you know, lots of safety work. Do you find that the different hats that you wear um, sort of um, negate what you present out in the public? Like, would you say that you're a different Sadie when you're out in in the in the communities, um, you know, talking about flooding and the damage that's done to these communities. And then you're a different Sadie when you're working with youth with like the mm-hmm. Red Rising magazine type of stuff. I mean, it it's it is all me. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of things that I do care about. And I think that are really important for other people to understand and to know about. Um, I mean, before when I was younger. When I just kind of started activism, I was very compartmentalizing my life where my social life, my family life, my school life, to activism life. Mm-hmm. And I realized that that was completely unsustainable. Um, and I moved on towards like a lot of my friends are also community advocates. And so that's also part of my social life. And, you know, my community is like my chosen family. So there's still like aspects of all this kind of interwoven um, and the work that I do you know, it's usually um, 
tied to who I who I am as a person. So the fact that I do hydro stuff is because like I'm from a hydro impacted community. So that kind of brings back to my roots a lot. And, um, you know, stuff around two spiritedness is because I'm two spirited and things around like uh, Red Rising was because, you know, my interactions with media, mainstream media, you know, there's a lot of aspects to that. Um, And so it's not so much that I'm just one, I'm one person, I'm multiple persons Mm -hmm. because of multiple causes is more like I just see the bigger picture and that there's a lot of tension that needs to be played at certain areas. Um, and so I tried to fill myself in and plug myself in into certain things and hope that, you know, there's kind of this web also of actions that's taking place. And so in terms of all the work that you're doing and um, sort of all the change that you're creating within, you know, different communities and, you know, I'm assuming different people's lives are, you know, very much affected by by the work that you do and the work that you do so passionately. What I want to get into is talking about the big R, mm-hmm. the big reconciliation, reconciliation. Um, it, it is kind of um, a big buzzword right now. And um, what I want to know from you is, you know, where do you see yourself in terms of reconciliation? I know I understand what you're saying uh, around it becoming a buzzword, um, it being co-opted to kind of serve uh, Canadians and not so much serving Indigenous peoples. Um, Well, mainly the way I see it is because there's a huge component of reconciliation that people forget about, which is the truth aspect. Um, We can't get anywhere until we share what 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 is the truth of what happened, um, the, the truth of our state of where we are, and also the truth of where we want to go um, that's decided upon us. I'm Turtle Clan, so I always see my responsibility is to share that truth or to find that truth um, and disseminate that outwards. So I guess my role in reconciliation is before even reconciling uh, is to share what it is that we need to reconcile about we're nowhere near reconciliation and I know a lot of people keep saying oh this is a step towards it this is a path towards it well if you're going to say it's a step or a path towards reconciliation why don't you just say this is the truth um or this is what is happening you know um because at least then when it's truth it's you can't really um twist it around you know you can't really change truth um, and what I've seen with people doing reconciliation is that they're twisting that and changing it to serve certain needs um, or to comfort white settler fragility. So I get very worried when people are like, oh, we're putting on this conference on reconciliation. It's like, OK, but you're not going to solve you're not going to create reconciliation unless there's some truth component to that. Um, what aspects of this conference are you sharing truth like is there elders present like what's happening who's speaking you know uh is it just people talking about how they feel about reconciliation or is it actually taking necessary steps towards what needs to happen um in order to address some of the wrongs you know so there's a lot of components to that i know people always want to live in this like optimistic kind of world view of things and it's not that I'm a pessimistic, but I'm more of like a real person where I see what's wrong and I call it out and say, okay, so this is an issue. And in order for us to address, like, in order for us to figure something out, like, we actually have to address it head on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of people are afraid of that. They're, they're, they like to tiptoe around the issue in hopes that if they scratch the surface just a little bit, then they did their duty. So what do you think are some truths that need to be addressed before reconciliation can happen, um, even on on the smallest of scales? You know, I can do the whole system name off here around, you know, uh, incarceration, education system, uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and violence against women and and two-spirited folks. Um, There's CFS um, that needs... (laughs) CFS alone is a huge issue, and uh, I think this is really important that I think the government isn't totally uh, focusing on, or it's just kind of brushing over it, but it is a replication of, you know, 
the genocide that we faced on residential residential schools in Sixty Scoop. Like this is just another facet of that, um, which is very alarming. Um, that's a huge priority. Um, the fact that the government wants to shove pipelines down our throats um, and not adhering to our own sovereignty of our own traditional territories. Um, that's really frustrating. So it, there's multiple multiple layers there. Um, but even down to like, you know, not interfering with our governance and not imposing this INAC in, in system and also their engagement and consultation of, oh, we're just going to engage with um, the AFN or, you know, these like big honcho indigenous lobby groups mm-hmm. um, and not really down to the people and kind of passing it off to Caroline Bennett and, and things like that. Um, he doesn't seem as caring as he says he is. Um, you know, there's a lot of um, issues all over the table when it comes to, you know, our elders, um, language rights. Uh, so there's a lot of issues um, yeah. that we need to, to address. And I guess in terms of truth is realizing whose responsibility it is to address and to remedy um, and whose responsibility is it to uh, come together and, and sort this out. But having to sort of navigate the world as adults who, you know, came out and, you know, saying, well, actually, this is my identity. And if we're going to honor my true identity, I go by these pronouns. Mm-hmm. And some people are really good and they embrace it. But then there's some people who within even our, you know, like power groups who, you know, will still refuse to acknowledge something as simple but still it can be so detrimental Mm -hmm. as our pronouns so um i believe you go by they them yeah and um just you know even having somebody identify you as who you are um i feel like you know that's something that's the truth. That's who you are. And, you know, moving forward in reconciliation is having people identify us correctly. Um, do you see any other things like just the, you know, simple tasks that people can take in moving forward with re- reconciliation um, that, you know, may seem simple to other people, but, you know, for us, it would make us feel, you know, more included mm-hmm. in our communities and less, you know, sort of like on the outskirts. Yeah. Um, I mean, I do, I do go by they, them. Um, there was a period of time where I went by she, her, they, them. Mm-hmm. Um, my name is Sadie Phoenix. And like, it, I'm going through like a trans- transition for people, like mm-hmm. allowing people to uh, see this transition as it happens and like kind of take them along on that. So, when I say like, oh, I'm Sadie Phoenix, it's like I'm using both my names. So mm-hmm. in order for you to understand, like um, people call me Sadie, people also call me Phoenix. Mm-hmm. You can call me both and it'd be fine. You know, um, in terms of my gender pronouns, um, there was a lot. There was a phase there where I wasn't sure how I felt about they, them. Like yeah. it's very plural. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get like two spirited is also pluralized, but I'm still this one being yeah um and so i was always trying to struggle trying to figure out like do i still fit in, within that um with kind of in a decolonial indigenous lens what does that look like yeah and i actually found certain languages or in shinabe um certain words that would describe two-spirited people yeah um and i was like well what what why are we using these like yeah. you know and um i get the whole push for you know acknowledgement of gender pronouns and and um and things like that, non-binary pronouns. Um, and that's good for the general society, Yeah, you know, for them to acknowledge those things. I think that's really important for, you know, even queer people of color and, and stuff like that. There is a lot of um, just disrespect when mm-hmm. somebody wants to be called something, then that's what they should be called at, right? Yeah. Um, but in terms of this whole, like, homogeny around gen- gender neutrality and 
um, non-binary and stuff like that. I'm I'm trying to find a different way um, mm-hmm. that has like it's a little bit more reflective for Indigenous folks. Yes. Um, so, for instance, like in Akazu's like men or woman that does men's roles was the kind of uh, a term that was used to explain two spirited people because two spirited people is still pretty r- relatively new. Yeah. Um, and also the fact that our language, our um, yeah, our languages aren't based on gender. I know. So like <laughs> when we acknowledge that we our languages ourselves and this push towards like language revitalization, yeah, there is a conversation to say well that a lot of our languages is gender neutral. Yeah. So like, let's acknowledge that. Yeah. Um, and at least then it would give people a little bit more comforts and acknowledging that we shouldn't have to go through he, she, her, or be like, hey, ladies, hey, guys, mm-hmm. like using these kind of like un- umbrella terms. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, for now, they, them, um, you know, in terms of revitalizing language and kind of seeing things through a different lens, I think that there's another step there that we can take. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like the, the, could you say the word again? Inakazu. Inakazu. Yeah. That is awesome. <laughs> um, so uh, that was Sadie Phoenix Lavoy, mm-hmm. and they are from Saging First Nation. And we were sitting here talking about reconciliation. Thank you, and miigwech. Miigwech. Welcome back to Mino Gundag and the Good Voice Podcast, the show exploring reconciliation from an Indigenous perspective. We just spoke with Sadie Phoenix Lavoy, co-founder of Red Rising Magazine. You can find Red Rising Magazine at your local bookstore. Miigwech to all of our guests on this episode, the sixth in our series. And thank you for sharing your stories and your thoughts on a subject that should be on every Canadian voice, reconciliation. We hope that you've enjoyed our conversations today and will tune into future episodes as we engage in more thought-provoking conversations about reconciliation. We'll close off our episode with a track from Leanne Simpson from their album, Flight. This is Road Salt. Check out more of their music at leannesimpson.bandcamp.com. Surveys. 
Gundagan was produced on Treaty 1 territory, the original homelands of the Anishinaabeg, Nahayak, Ojikri, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. Our executive producer is Alyssa Blackwolf-Kixon, our associate producer is Sasha Mark, and I'm your host, Tim Fontaine. Our theme music comes to us courtesy of Boogie the Beat. Check out more of his brilliant work at soundcloud.com, Boogie the Beat. The interstitial music is courtesy of Bloom. You can hear more of their songs at bloom14.bandcamp.com. We would like to thank the Community Radio Fund of Canada, the University of Manitoba's Office of Indigenous Achievement, the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation, the University of Manitoba Students' Union, and UMFM 101.5 for their support in the production of this series.